You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And if you didn't get sermon notes, we do have some in the back. I forgot to put them out until we'd actually kind of started. So um, if you need some, raise your hand and Tyson can grab some if you didn't get a copy. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Going old school this week with a traditional Bible. Sold my iPad, but I haven't gotten something to replace it yet. But I've got the handy-dandy iPod in, in case I feel like it's starting to take me longer than I want it to to get to the different passages that we're going to look at today. Not that I don't know my books of the Bible. I mean, I know where they are. I can get there. I mean, I was champion at sword drills and stuff, but it still takes still takes a little time. And uh, our time is never as long as I want it to be together uh, on Sundays. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, We've been looking at the final instructions that Paul has for this church, and we've been grouping it together as his instruction for how church life is supposed to look like until Jesus returns. Kind of an end-time perspective for a church to be thinking about Jesus coming back, but also minding and taking care of the business that needs to happen on a a daily basis. Um, And we come finally to verse 23 of chapter 5. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, before we really get into this passage, we've been reading chapter 5 to to set the context for the verses that we're looking at. But I actually want to go back to chapter 4 this week and and read chapter 4, and then I'm just going to breeze right over chapter 5. We're not going to read it again. The reason for that is that Paul's wrapping up all of his discussion now for this entire letter. And remember I told you that new information starts in chapter 4. Chapter 1, 2, and 3, he's kind of recapping stuff. This is things that uh, that I'm encouraged about, things that I've heard from you, and then he starts getting into some new information, things that he wants them to know, things that are meant to complete their sanctification. And he wraps up with this passage in, in chapter 5 saying, I'm praying for that completion of your sanctification. So I want to go back and look at some of the instruction that he's given them just to remind us what we looked at in chapter 4. We'll cover chapter 5 real quick, just kind of summarize it, and then get into our text today. You'll remember that he. Um, He had that report come back from Timothy. Uh, His presence had not been, um, he hadn't been able to get to the church at Thessalonica like he wanted to. His presence had been delayed. Um, He attributes that to Satan. He says, I couldn't get to you guys because of Satan. Satan hindered me from being able to come to you. But Timothy did make it, and Timothy brought back a report. And we can assume that a lot of chapter 4 and chapter 5 are based off the report Timothy gave. Here's uh, here's what the church is, here's what they're struggling with, here's what they need to know, and Paul writes accordingly. So he says in chapter 4, verse 1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. 
For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one who transgress in, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I think that's great context for what even the men were discussing this week, that Work is an opportunity for us to take care of responsibilities that God has given us as a witness to lost people. That that's supposed to serve as part of our testimony. That we are godly, upstanding men who are responsible men of integrity who do what we're supposed to do. And I think when we're able to do it joyfully, it doesn't make sense to the lost world because the lost world does live for the weekends. The lost world does live for 5 o'clock when they get off. And I think when we can become people who don't waste those 8 hours of our day who live responsibly, work responsibly, it becomes an unbelievable witness to a dying world. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So Paul starts off chapter 4 talking about sexual morality. Be sexually moral people. We don't know to what degree this was an issue, to what degree this was a problem within the church, if they had simply been saved out of it, and he's just pushing them more and more to holiness, or if there had actually become a sexually immoral problem within the church, and he was having to address it. And I told you that you know the teaching was very relevant for our church, being where we're at as a church, that we've got a lot of young people who haven't uh, entered into a, a, a marriage relationship where that relationship's to be enjoyed. Um, and so there's the potential threat there that God will, um, that Satan will, will bring into our church sinful situations like that, lead our people into temptation. And so we want to pray to God and, and be aware of the fact that, that that could be a potential struggle. And so we want to fight for sexual morality in our church. And then in the, the context of our young families, that we're fighting for contentment within our marriage, that we're aware of the fact that affairs happen all the time. And it happens to people that you would never expect it to. And so I can look out and say, man, I know these people. I know these couples. I know these families. That would never happen. And it's precisely those people that it always happens to, it seems like. And so the teaching was very relevant when we were there in chapter 4, that we want to be, just like Thessalonica, a church that is pursuing sexual purity. And then in chapter 5, he describes again just the idea of Jesus returning, the purpose for that knowledge that we encourage one another. And then we come to that final instruction about how we're to interact as a church that leadership is to lead responsibly exercise authority work hard 
Do your job as leadership in the church. The flock is to respond to that, to be at peace in the church because the leadership's doing what it's supposed to do. The flock is responding to that and everything's working the way that God intended within the church. So the, the relationship between leadership and flock. And then we looked at the relationship between flock and flock, that we're to, um, we're to encourage each other, those that are faint-hearted, those that are thinking about quitting, they're, they're discouraged, things that are going on in their life. We're to admonish the idol. People that have become blinded to their own sin, have wandered away because of that sin, we're to, we're to go to them. We're to instruct them about righteousness. We're to, if necessary, get into their face to wake them up because they don't realize which, which way they're going. And then to help the weak, those who are aware that they're slipping, those that are aware that they're, they're tending to fall away and, and they're, they're not making good, wise decisions, to go and rally them back to Jesus, to, to rally them back to the fellowship of the church, to encourage them to the relationship of our people with each other. And then last week we looked at the relationship of the flock to the shepherd, the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And over the last two weeks we've talked about how we're to always rejoice the way that we always rejoice is that we pray continually and we're thankful all the time. We find small things to be thankful for all the time, and it leads to us being the type of people that rejoice always. And then specifically last week, we looked at not quenching the Spirit. And I told you in the same way, the way that we quench the Spirit is by the two things that he lists after that. If we despise prophecies and we don't test everything, then we're guilty of quenching the Spirit. In order to understand what quenching the Spirit meant, we looked at some, some other words that are used in Scripture. We talked about what it means to resist the Spirit. That's something that an unbeliever does. The Holy Spirit comes, convicts about the Gospel, shows sin and where it is, and that there's a need for a Savior. Unbelievers resist the Spirit. And I told you if they're not careful, if they're not careful, they run the risk of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, where they ultimately just say, no, I'm not accepting the Gospel. And Jesus seems to allude that there's a point in time where you can so reject the gospel that the Holy Spirit stops drawing to salvation. We don't know when that happens. We don't have the authority to tell somebody, you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, you'll never be saved. But Jesus tells the Pharisees, if you do this, and they were on the verge of it because they had the Old Testament law, they had the Holy Spirit right there working in the midst of them, people were getting saved, they have God's Son, Jesus, teaching them. And when Jesus asked for feedback, anybody got any questions? Anybody need me to explain that further? Pharisees say, we think you're from Satan. Like, we think you're, you're the devil. And Jesus is like, whoa. If that's the conclusion you've reached, then you're on the verge of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and, and, and you'll never be saved. Like, like that's, that's a point where there's nothing else I can tell you. There's nothing else to be explained. You know the gospel and you're saying no to it. And by saying no to it, you're never going to be saved. That's, that's unbelievers resisting and blaspheming. And then we looked at quenching, quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit. We said we grieve the Holy Spirit by quenching the Holy Spirit. So it's virtually the same thing, just from two different perspectives. We do the quenching and the Holy Spirit gets the grieving part of it. When we quench him, he is grieved. And we said specifically... To quench him is to kind of put out the fire of what he's trying to do, his work. We said the Holy Spirit's work is to sanctify, to draw people to salvation, to make them holy and blameless. So to quench that work is to hinder the gospel, to hinder discipleship, to do anything to hinder the work of the Holy Spirit within the church. We said that the one way that the Holy Spirit really wants to do that in the context of Sunday gatherings is through the avenue of prophecy. 
We said that's changed over the years. In that context, they don't have the New Testament, so they relied more on some of those spiritual giftings of, of prophecy and tongues to communicate to the church. This is what needs to happen. This is what it means to follow Jesus. But that really prophecy just has to do with revelation from God, either new revelation or just repeat revelation. And the fact that they're told to test it means that it's different than the word. It doesn't hold the same authority as God's word. It's people who are spiritually mature teaching other believers about Jesus, but they're fallible. I mean, they're, they're capable of making mistakes. So we test everything. We hold on to what's good. We get away from what's evil, what, what has no profit for us. And I challenged you last week that, that we have to test everything. Books that we read, podcasts that we listen to, pastor that you listen to, that I need to be tested constantly. That there's no guarantee that I can give you beyond my word that I'll never teach you false doctrine. And I like to think to myself that that'll never happen, that I'll never wander away from the faith. And I can tell you that, but pastors have made the same promise and done the, the exact opposite. So the way that you protect me, the way you protect yourself, is you test everything. You test everything that I say. You don't just drink it in and say, oh, Adam said it must be true. I don't have to do my homework. That we have to be like the Bereans were in Acts where they tested everything. They compared it to what Scripture says. Does it line up? Leadership has to be able to do that. They have to be able to, to refute doctrine that's not consistent with God's Word. And I told you that we do it based on doctrine, not on preference. Which means we're not going to get up here as leadership or as a church. We don't want to criticize other people outside our church based on their methods or just preferences for how they do ministry. It may not be how we would do it, but if they're lovers of Jesus, lovers of the gospel, I don't have time to criticize their methods. It's unproductive. It's unprofitable. You don't need to be protected from, from methods or preferences that I don't particularly like. You do need to be protected from false doctrine. So when mainstream stuff co starts coming out, books that you're going to find at every bookstore, it may be necessary for me to address that and say, hey, y'all need to stay away from that stuff. If you want to look at it and see some of the things that I've looked at, if you're looking at it for that purpose, we can talk about that. But you need to stay away from that stuff. It's not encouraging. It's not profitable. It's evil. Hey, here's a, here's a famous pastor who, who has risen to fame, and, and people are listening to him and reading his books. You need to stay away from him. He's dangerous. He doesn't worship the same Jesus we worship. He doesn't believe the Bible the way that we believe it. It's not because he's different in preference or style. It's because he's teaching a false message. And Paul made it very clear. He said, if I ever teach you a false gospel, then I should be cursed. So he told the Galatians, he said, you, you compare everything that I say now to what I've said in the past. Because if it doesn't line up, stop listening to me. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Accept the word. Be doers of the word. Hear the word. And test everything. Test everything. And so we come to these closing remarks now. Verse 23, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. First thing in your notes as far as closing remarks go to this Thessalonica church. Number one, there's a prayer for comprehensive sanctification. A prayer for comprehensive sanctification. And I word it that way because I don't believe that Paul is praying for perfection for this church because i think the new testament's clear we have no hope for perfection until jesus comes back so i don't think paul has 
become misguided here in thinking that if you're not perfect, then we've got a problem. You need to be perfect. Now we know that the, the New Testament points us to perfection. We're to be holy as God is holy. We're to obviously desire for there to be no more sin in our life. But it's unrealistic to think that that's actually possible here on this earth. We're still sinful. We still live in a flesh that's unredeemed. If we could actually be perfect, we wouldn't need new bodies. The whole fact that we get new bodies when Jesus comes back lets us know we'll never get to where we want to get to until that glorious day. But that doesn't have to be a, a point of um, frustration. It doesn't have to be a point of discouragement. The way I like to think of it is um, a football team can go out and play a, a near-flawless game. For those of you that watched the recent game between Georgia and Alabama, it, it's being talked about as one of the greatest SEC games of all time. Um, for Georgia fans, we lost that game, but we look back on it in pride and say, man, our team played really good. Like, what an encouragement to see a team that we like play really good on a big game, in a big game for a change. I mean, it was really encouraging. If you talk to those coaches, though, they could sit down and list off probably pages and pages and pages of mistakes that their team made in that game. I had the privilege of coaching at Trinity with the middle school team. We lost one game this year. We won the state championship. That state championship game, in celebrating after that game, if we'd have really wanted to, we could have sat down and said, man, we did this wrong, we did this wrong, we did this wrong. You can win a game and it be really, really good and still have a lot of mistakes. A football team will never play a perfect game. You'll never have a football team not make a penalty, not miss an assignment. But that, that doesn't leave a football team saying, well, why should we even play? If we'll never play a perfect game, why should we even play? No, the coach's mindset and the player's mindset is, let's get better every game. Every practice, let's get better. We'll never be perfect. We'll never be perfect. But the coaches and players don't throw up their hands and say, then what's the point? Let's don't play this game. No, the mindset is, we can get better. We can get better and better and better and better. And that's how it is for sanctification until Jesus comes back. We get less and less sinful, more and more Jesus. We'll never be perfect, but that doesn't mean we throw up our hands and say, then what's the point? Why even try? It's no. The Holy Spirit's going to continue to make us more and more like Christ. And we'll get to that point. We actually have the encouragement that one day we will be perfect. But it won't happen until a specific day. But in the meantime, we can keep that football mentality of, hey, we're not going to be perfect, but let's get better every day. Let's be more and more what God calls us to be every single day. And that's what Paul's praying for here, comprehensive sanctification. Not necessarily perfection, but he's praying for sanctification to extend to all areas of their life. I put in my notes, Paul has given them detailed instruction for their growth. Chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to 522. He's told them a bunch of things to start doing. That's what we read this morning. We read chapter 4. We glazed back over chapter 5. So he's given them detailed instruction, and now he says, I'm praying that that actually happens. I'm praying that the things I just told you to do happen in your life. It's encouraging, too, that Paul can confidently pray for their sanctification because he's confident about their justification. Remember way back in chapter 1, we talked about how Paul was confident these people were saved? He knew they had responded to the gospel. He'd seen fruit in their life that guaranteed they were saved. So he's not praying for people that he's like, eh, I don't know if they're saved or not saved. I mean, he knows these people are saved, and he's praying for their sanctification. In your notes, who does this comprehensive work? 
Who is it that's ultimately responsible for this sanctification? We see in our, in our text, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. It's the God of peace who does this. The God of peace is the one who is responsible for our sanctification. I think Paul entitles God the God of peace for a couple of reasons. One, he's the God of peace because he brings about peace between him and ourselves through salvation. He's known as the God of peace because he's made sure that his plan for us is one of peace. He sends his son to attain peace for us. As Romans says, there's no condemnation now for those that are in Christ Jesus. Everything's okay now. We're at peace with God. But think he, I think he also calls him a God of peace because, remember, right back here in um, verse, at the end of verse 13, he says, Be at peace among yourselves. All the instruction that he's giving in this final benediction here is about peace. He says, I want the church to be at peace. I want you to do these things so you'll be at peace. And now he's saying, I'm praying that the God of peace will sanctify you so that you will be at peace with each other. So he's identifying that God is the source for the peace that he wants in the life of this church. So God is a God of peace because he makes peace possible with him, and he makes peace possible with each other. He's the God of peace. He's the God of peace. And Paul's praying to that God saying, sanctify, sanctify these people. So we've seen who does the work. What is the work? What, is it, what does it mean to sanctify? What does it mean to sanctify? It means to set apart, to set apart or to separate. To set apart or to separate. The Greek word is hagiazo. It's really the verb form of holy. It's the verb form of holy. So God is holy. And God makes other things holy. He is holy, and then he does the work of making people holy. He sanctifies people. He sets them apart. He separates them. God's holy because he's separate from creation. He's different. He's different. He's not creation. He's different. That's why Romans 1 says he's so appalled at false gods. When people construct created things to bow down and worship to and to give credit to everything that we see. He says, how foolish. People in Romans 1, they look around, they see there's something bigger out there, they see there's something greater out there, and then they build something, they create something and give it the credit. He says, I'm holy, I'm different than you, I'm separate from you, I'm the one that created everything, nothing's like me. I'm holy, I'm holy, and within that we understand God to be separate from sin as well. He's separate from creation. He's separate from sin. And he's the one that makes us that way as well. He sanctifies us. When we talked about sanctification um, back in chapter 4, where we were told that that's God's will for our life, we define sanctification as the progressive work of the Holy Spirit and the believer that makes us more and more free from sin more and more like Jesus in our actual lives. If you just want to dial that down a little bit and remember the simplified version, sanctification is less and less sin, more and more Jesus. Less sin, more Jesus. It's not just one of them. Sometimes churches teach less sin, less sin, less sin, follow the rules, follow the rules, follow the rules, and they forget that sanctification is be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Be the type of person 
that just starts naturally doing the right thing because of who you are. We can make anybody conform to a list of rules. We can hand out a list of rules and say, do this, don't do this. God's interested in making people that really don't need rules. They just automatically do what he wants them to do because he's made them that type of person. That's what the new covenant's all about. It's about the Holy Spirit writing the word on our heart so that we don't need a list to follow. We just become the type of people that God wants us to be, and we respond rightly in all the situations that we're given. If we're people that are rejoicing and praying and giving thanks, I guarantee you I don't need to tell you to, to serve other people, to, to care about the faint-hearted, to care about the idle, to, to care about the weak. You just become people that do. You just become, it's, it overflows from the type of person that you've become. That's what the Holy Spirit's interested in, making us those type of individuals. It's not rule keeping. It's not earning favor. It's not paying God back. That's not what sanctification's about. I don't start being obedient to earn his favor. I've earned his favor through Jesus Christ. Jesus earned it for me. So I don't have to, to obey to make God like me. I don't have to obey to make God love me. He already loves me. He already likes me. He adopted me into his family. And I don't pay him back. I don't, I don't perform little petty good works to pay him back for dying on the cross for me. The Holy Spirit's interested in what Titus says in chapter 2, verse 14. He wants people that are zealous, passionate for good works. Less sin, more Jesus. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. I'll read a couple of these. Maybe we should just have a sword drill and whoever gets it first can read it for us. Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Sanctification all about less sin. We've been freed from it. Chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 2 Timothy 2, 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the Son of the Lord depart from iniquity. God's all about decreasing sin in our life and increasing Jesus in our life. It's the work of the Holy Spirit and the believer. The believer does have uh, a responsibility in his sanctification, and we'll talk more about that as we move on. There's, a, there's, a, there's an importance to understand how sanctification works in the life of the believer. In your notes, sanctification has been accomplished, is being accomplished, and has yet to be accomplished. Could there be more of a contradictory sentence? <laughs> it has been accomplished, it is being accomplished, and it's yet to be accomplished. Sounds like an English lesson talking about past, present, and future tense verbs and, and, and um, adjectives and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if you can have a past tense adjective, so I just, no. Um, it's been accomplished, the Bible tells us. It is being accomplished, and it will be accomplished. And I want, to see the, I want you to see this in Scripture, and I think it, it, it's important so that our mindset's right when we even think about our sanctification. Um, Hebrews chapter 10 
Hebrews chapter 10, it's a little bit lengthy, but I think it's important for us to look at the whole context of what the author of Hebrews is saying here. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. If you're not aware, the book of Hebrews is all about how Jesus is better than everything. I mean, you could just, you could just title Hebrews, Jesus is better than everything. And, and, and we don't know who wrote Hebrews, which typically would be a reason to not include it in the Bible. But because it's so, so good about Jesus, they said this has to be from God. We don't know exactly who wrote it, so we can't say that, that it comes with the authority of an apostle. But the fact that it's so so detailed and so good in talking about Jesus, it's got to be part of God's word. And this whole chapter here is about how Christ's sacrifice is better than the animal sacrifices. And part of the reason we know that is that animal sacrifices had to be offered every year, every, every day even to some degree. They were offering sacrifices constantly. Blood was being shed at the tabernacle and at the temple constantly. Verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8, this is what we call divine hermeneutics. This is when uh, New Testament tells us what something really means in other parts of God's word. So he says, When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There's that past tense sanctification. What Jesus did has sanctified you. What Jesus did has set you apart as God's people. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's another one of those sentences that's like, what? Like, has it happened or hasn't it happened? For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, basically, those who are being perfected. So from God's perspective, sanctification is guaranteed. It's happened from God's perspective. It's still happening from our perspective. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That new covenant, he's making us into these type of people. Where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So the author's trying to tell us, look, live in reality of this. Live in the reality that you're sanctified right now. We don't offer sacrifices anymore. That'll never be a part of our first hour of worship here. We'll do things like pray and do things like the Lord's Supper and sing. We'll never have sacrifice time. That used to be their services. That used to be what they did. 
And the author of Hebrews is saying, look around and live in the reality that you don't do it anymore. Now, this was this would have resonated with them more because you're talking about people who had done it like last week and now they weren't doing it this week. And it's like, whoa, we don't have to do it anymore. We've never done it, so it doesn't hit us in the face like it would have them. But just think about what that would look like if you had to come every week with an animal because of all your failures for the week. The author of Hebrews says you don't have to do that anymore. You're sanctified. One sacrifice that is good for all time. Past sins, present sins, future sins. You're sanctified. Then he tells us what that looks like if we, if we believe that. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the covenant, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I mean, it changes the way you live when you believe those first 18 verses. We now know that we can approach God confidently. I mean, he talks about going into the most holy place. I mean, that was the most intimate setting in the tabernacle temple. I mean, you had one guy who was allowed to go in there one time a year. It would have been ridiculous to talk about how we we now have access to that. I mean, in that context, Jewish people, I mean, that was off limits. You were never allowed in that room. And now he's just openly talking about it. Hey, we can go in there whenever we want to. We have full access to him. He says, because of that, let's be faithful to each other. Let's be faithful till he comes back. Not because we need to earn that. It's been earned. It's been earned. So we're not paying God back. We're becoming people that he wants us to be, Holy Spirit living inside of us. We've been sanctified. We're being sanctified, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Paul says we've got all these promises. Now let's make it happen. Let's do it. Let's be holy people. What's really encouraging, though, is that Paul addresses over and over in the New Testament the churches as set-apart ones, basically as holy ones or sanctified ones. You can look at um, Romans 1.7. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3, Ephesians 1, 1 through 2. In all those very first passages, he's greeting those churches and he's saying to the saints, to the set-apart ones, to the called ones, to the holy ones. And if you ever have to question whether or not that applies to you, just read First and Second Corinthians and realize how still sinful those people were. I mean, they weren't what we would call solid believers yet. I mean, they had all kinds of bad sins, bad habits that were still going on. But when Paul starts off talking to him, he says, hey, saints, hey, holy ones, hey, sanctified ones. Sanctification has been accomplished. It's being accomplished. And it will be accomplished fully one day. Philippians 3, 20 through 21. There's a couple other passages we could look at. We'll look at that one. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
goes back to what I said earlier. The fact that we have glorified bodies to come shows that we can never be perfect now. It guarantees that perfection isn't possible because we still need glorified bodies. All right, so looking back in 1 Thessalonians 5, we, talk, we call this comprehensive Comprehensive sanctification is what he's praying for. He's not praying for perfection. He's praying for sanctification to to hit all aspects of the person. It says, May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I put in my notes, Sanctification is meant to stretch to all parts of man. To all parts of man. Now, some commentators and some preachers would get bogged down on this verse, and they would do a whole separate sermon on trichotomy and dichotomy trichotomy says that we're made up of three parts our soul our spirit and our body they would base it off passages like this other people would say nope dichotomy body and soul and spirit are the same thing um in all my readings about this i don't think it really matters um i I really don't think it matters so we're not going to really delve into which one it is Uh, you can disagree about this and it really doesn't matter because Paul has some other bigger points. He's not trying to, to define how man is made up. Is it body, soul, and spirit? Or uh, body and then soul and spirit being the same thing. In my notes, the point that he's trying to make, don't be okay with some parts being sanctified and some not. That's the point he wants this church to, to, to get to is, don't be okay if you stop do, doing some of this stuff, but you're still dirty and nasty in this area. It's not about having your good works outweigh your bad works. And so at the end of the day, you say, all right, I can, I can be comfortable now. I'm, 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 I'm what's considered a, a good Christian. And, and no, I'm not perfect in these areas, but who is, you know? But I, I've done really good in these areas. And Paul says, I want sanctification to reach to all aspects of who you are. Dichotomy or trichotomy. Let's just get everything dunked in sanctification. Let's be holy. Let's be set apart. So I think his first point we want to uh, to hit everything in sanctification. Point number two, the body needs to be holy along with the mind, heart, and intentions. I think he's drawn on the fact that man is both material and immaterial. And you really don't have a man unless you have both. You don't look at a dead corpse and say, there's a man. Nope, that's a body. And honestly, I don't think you can look at souls in heaven and say, hey, that's a good condition to be in. No. Hebrews says that the souls in heaven can't wait till Jesus comes back because they're not perfected yet. So we sing a lot about, man, we can't wait to go to heaven, can't wait to be with Jesus. That is not the hope of the believer long term. It's a great in-between state, but the long-term hope of the believer is that our bodies get fixed. We're not supposed to be separate from our bodies. And these Gentiles who make up a lot of the Thessalonica church, there was some false doctrine going around that the body was evil the body was was not in god's long-term plans so do whatever you want to physically you're supposed to and paul's saying no sanctification means both inward sanctification and outward sanctification make your body holy first corinthians um six talks about your body being the temple not only do we not offer sacrifices we don't come to the temple anymore there's nothing sacred about where we're meeting today. That's why we can meet here or we can meet at the Dirty Freeman Sasser, and either one's fine because the body is the temple. And really the body corporately makes up the temple of God, not just individual bodies, but the body together, I believe, is God's picture of what the temple looks like. 
So he says, I want sanctification to extend to all areas, both spirit, soul, and body. And he says, I want it to be kept blameless, blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. This idea of kept blameless, it really means to, to stay on the path of holiness. Don't wander off the path. Don't be someone who, who really gets far along in their sanctification and then just walks away from the faith. Stay on the course. Be kept blameless until the end. Psalm 119, um, my, my sixth graders are going through uh, this chapter. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. We're given the prescription for how to pursue holiness. We have to stay close to the word. Stay close to the word. If we get away from the word, we're prone to wander. Prone to wander. great example of this is, um, is a guy in Scripture in the Old Testament, uh, King Joash. King Joash. Who's the youngest person in here right now? How old is Juju? How old is Anna? Eight. Okay. King Joash became king of Israel at seven. At seven. So Juju and Anna would already have a year under their belt if they were king of the United, or queen of the United States. Seven years old, this guy becomes king. Now, there was a lot that, that took place before that to even make him king. His, his grandmother was Queen Athelia. She was the daughter of King Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel, not good people. Queen Athelia. Her husband was king. He dies. Her son becomes king, and he dies. She becomes queen and proceeds to kill everybody else in the royal family. So, you know, it's probably not a coincidence that her husband died and her son died. I mean, she, she wanted to be queen. So she's trying to get rid of everybody. Well, Joash escapes. that She doesn't realize that Joash has been born. He's hidden, and he's raised to be the age of seven. And then they overthrow her. This guy, this priest, Jehoiada, overthrows her, and they make Joash the king. Well, obviously at age seven, he's not ready to lead the, the nation of Judah. And so Jehoiada the priest offers a lot of guidance to him. In Second Chronicles, we're told that Jehoiada led him in the things of God. And as long as Jehoiada was alive, Judah followed God. But then the Bible tragically says that Jehoiada dies and that these other people start to influence Joash. And he wanders away. He wanders away from God's word, and he leads the people of Judah to worship false gods. He's confronted by Zechariah, who's Jehoiada's son, the guy who basically raised Joash. Zechariah comes calling, kind of like Nathan came to David and said, hey, you sinned with Bathsheba, get right. Zechariah comes and says, dude, like, what are you doing? Like, We've got to come back to God. We've got to come back to the word. And Joash kills him. He kills him. And God ends up bringing judgment on Joash, and he's murdered in his bed. It's an example of someone who seemed to be on the right path and then wandered off, got away from God's word, and doesn't finish strong. The Bible says that we have a responsibility to finish strong, to be kept blameless until the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, Colossians 1. Colossians 1, verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, 
which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul talks about their salvation, and he says, this is true about you. You've been saved. You'll be blameless on the day of Jesus if you make it there. If you make it there. And it kind of ties back in that responsibility that we have. If we're truly Christians, we do make it to the end. And I don't think Paul's trying to preach a works-based salvation now. He's not saying, if you continue to be a good Christian, then you're saved. He's really trying to say, if you're really a Christian, you will make it to the end. You will be faithful. So these things are only true about true Christians, and we know they're true Christians because they remain blameless to the end. What's really unique and interesting, Paul gives them this instruction in 1 Thessalonians. He says, I want you to be blameless. I'm praying for you to be blameless. Um, they, in, in digging up uh, some of the graves in Thessalonica, uh, this word blameless is amemptos, amemptos in the Greek. Um, this word blameless is found on the tombs of a lot of believers in Thessalonica. So after this letter is written, it, it seems they really did try to put this into practice. And in their church body, they wanted to be known as blameless people. And when these believers started to die... That's how they labeled them on their tombs, blameless, blameless, blameless. These people will be raised to life one day when Jesus comes back, and they will be found blameless. It's really cool to see kind of some practical application for these people. They really pursued this. They made it happen. They possessed this. They wanted to be found blameless on the day of Jesus Christ. Number two in your notes, an assurance of comprehensive sanctification. An assurance of comprehensive sanctification. God will accomplish sanctification in our life, but not absent from our efforts. Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13, that talks about how we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Then right after that, God says, or Paul says, God's the one that gives us the power to work out our salvation. There's a dual, a dual partnership there. God empowers us to pursue sanctification, but he also guarantees that he's the one that does it in us. I want to make three really important points here, and then we'll fly through this last part. Three things, or three ways to view in light of the fact that God's the one who does the work. First thing, we must view others' failures in light of God being the one who does the work. We have to view other people's failures, specifically in this church. There are going to be people in Sovereign Hope who will hurt you, who will disappoint you, who will let you down because they're not fully sanctified yet on this day. From God's perspective, they are. Practically, they are not. There will be harm that happens in this church, disappointment, failures, because we're not sanctified yet. But what we have to remember is Philippians 1.6. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I have a responsibility to view every single one of you through that light. That you will be made perfect one day. That you can harm me, disappoint me, fail me today. But God is still working in you and he will bring it to completion. And that can encourage us as we see failures within our church. Secondly, we must view our efforts of discipleship in light of God being the one who does the work. As we continue to be, try to create a, a, a mindset and an attitude of discipleship here, 
Let us never think that we are the ones that, that make people holy in this church. It's not how good I do at discipling others that makes them holy. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 says, Him we proclaim, Paul says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says, I want to present you guys blameless at the day of Jesus. He's talking to his disciples. I want to present you blameless. And I toil for that. I work for that. I struggle for that. Not because I'm awesome. Not because I'm awesome. I do it out of the energy and the power that God puts within me. He gives the credit back to where it belongs. He says, I'm not the one that's discipling you. I'm not the one that's raising you up blameless. It's God. Lastly, we must view our own efforts to be holy in light of God being the one who does the work. We must view our own efforts to be holy in light of God being the one who does the work. I'm not going to heaven because I'm awesome. I'm not staying faithful to Jesus because I'm awesome. Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Jude gives the credit to God. He's the one that keeps us faithful to the end. My salvation, your salvation, hinges on God's faithfulness in us. Paul prays to the God of peace to make sanctification happen. Your salvation on that day when you're found blameless will not be because of your efforts. It'll be because of what God has done in you. He's the one that is faithful. 1 Corinthians 1, nine. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ. Our Lord. Second Timothy two. Second Timothy two, verse eight. Yeah, this is where I want to be. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And, and Paul's making that same point that I made earlier, that you're saved and you're going to be found blameless if you're saved. If you're saved, you're guaranteed to make it to the end. If you're saved, you're guaranteed to finish strong. He says if you've died with him, you'll live with him. It's guaranteed. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he'll also deny us. And if it just ended there, it would be fine, it would be perfect, it would be good, it would be authoritative. But it doesn't end there. It's almost like Paul says these things and then says, uh, there's going to be people in the church that are like, like, there's times when I doubt God. There's times when I'm not sure if he's good. There's times when I'm not sure if I'm saved. Does that mean I'm not saved? 
He says, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Your salvation is not even about you always believing that you're saved. Now, if you walk away and deny him and say, I want nothing more to do with this, I'm not a Christian, then he denies you. Then you were never saved. But there's times, there's seasons that you might go through where you're struggling and you're like, I don't know. I don't know if I believe this. I don't know if this is real. I don't know if this is true. It's like the guy who cries out to Jesus and says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Like, I'd like to believe more. Help, help me believe more. I mean, it's like Jesus on the beach with Peter after he's denied him three times. You could easily say that Jesus should be saying, I deny you now. You're not my disciple. Get away from me. But he challenges Peter, and we've looked at that passage before. He's basically saying, do you super love me? I mean, do you love me with everything that you've got? And Peter's response is, you know I just really love you. And that's really what he says back. He, he says, you know I don't super love you. I just denied you just last, I mean, just within the last few days. I denied you three times. Clearly I don't love you with everything. And, and he's learned from that. And he says, Jesus, you know I really love you. He comes back and says, do you super love me? I really love you. And Jesus is like, that's okay. That's, that's all I need. He doesn't expect us to be fully faithful to the fullest. That happens one day when we're, when we're fully sanctified. He says, if you're faithless at times, he's still faithful. Your salvation doesn't depend on your faith alone. It doesn't, it doesn't depend on you having a super certain level of faith. He's the one that's faithful. He's the one that saves. Your salvation hinges on his faithfulness, not your faithfulness. That's so encouraging. I'm so glad Paul includes that, pass, that part of that passage there and doesn't just leave us hanging. And then lastly, a plea to support Paul's ministry. He says, back in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is the other way. Brothers, pray for us. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is a plea to support Paul's ministry. Number one, he says, pray for us. This is a lot of humility on Paul's part. He says, I need the same prayers that I'm praying for you. See, Paul could easily put himself on a level that says, I'm praying for you guys that you'll actually make it. I'm praying that you'll be more like me, somebody who's going to make it. No, he says, please pray for me. Like, I, need, I know you need the prayer, I need the prayer. And that's my heart, too, as your pastor, is that I pray for you, pray for me. Pray for me that I'm found blameless on that day. Pray for me that I, I, I stay faithful. Pray for me that I stay away from sin. Pray for me that I continue to be sanctified. Paul doesn't put himself on some elite status where he says, you guys are the ones that need the prayer. We'll be praying for you guys. No, he says, I'm praying for you, pray for me. I'm in the same group. I'm praying for you, you pray for me. Paul says, support me. Support me as I'm supporting you. And he says, greet each other with a holy kiss. He says, make sure people in that church know I love them. And we're going to get into like weird application here where all of a sudden we've been doing things wrong and we've got to start kissing each other when we come to church. This was what they did at the time. This was their appropriate uh, act of affection towards people that they cared about. In my studies historically, when uh, apparently at this time the guys and the girls kind of worshipped a little bit more segregated, so the guys were, were greeting each other this way, the girls were greeting each other this way, and then when the, like, it kind of blended together and then the guys and the girls were kissing – 
um, I think it all became apparent, apparent, hey, we need to start doing something different because I'm not okay with you kissing my wife. And, um, and so it seemed to kind of phase out as the culture of the church changed. And I think if Paul were writing today, he would, he would say something totally different. He may say, give everybody there a hug for me. Uh, it, it's let those people know that I care about them. Because remember, Paul can't get there. Paul can't get there. And he's writing a letter hoping that everybody in that church gets it, that everybody in that church knows his affection for them. That's so important within the context of this church that we're faithful, especially in regards to leadership, because leadership's not going to be able to, to touch on everybody's life like you would like. I can't spend time with everybody. Other elders can't spend time with everybody. And it's important that we support each other in letting each other know, hey, there is love in this church for everybody. You may not see it in the way that you want to see it. You may not get that personal presence all the time like you would like it. Paul says, I cannot be there, but make sure those people know that I love them in my absence, that I am praying for them, that I want their sanctification in my absence. And then lastly, he says, pass on my instruction, basically. So I put you under oath to read this. Make sure it is read to everybody. He's, he's establishing how these letters are to be used. In Colossians 4.16, he talks about churches exchanging letters. And it's a letter that we would say we don't even have. A, a letter to the church at Laodicea. A letter that we don't have. Paul says, y'all read it, and then you pass it on in Colossians. He, he's, he's establishing how to use his letter here. He says, I put you under oath. Make sure you read this corporately. Read it on a Sunday morning. Make sure everybody gets this. Don't hide it. He's trying to protect the leadership. Don't tell them what you think they need to know from my letter. This letter isn't for you. It's for everybody. Don't let Satan hinder sanctification here, basically. Make sure every word that I've said gets read. So the application for us today. I think, you know, obviously, first of all, that we've got to get to a point where we're resting in the fact that that our salvation is is all hinging on Jesus and not on us. And then out of that, these applications flow. The first being, what type of personal effort are you putting forth for your own sanctification? If you were to sit down and evaluate your life, we've said earlier in chapter 4, sanctification is God's will for you. What are you personally doing as far as effort goes for your own sanctification? Are you in the Word? Are you studying the Bible? Are you reading other books and other material that's going to help you grow? Are you in a relationship that, you would, that would be a discipleship type format where someone older or more mature is teaching you? Or are you in a situation where you're pouring into somebody else? Because I've shared before, I grow unbelievably when I'm pouring into somebody else. Growth doesn't just happen if somebody's teaching you. When you have to teach somebody else, it leads to unbelievable growth in your own life. Sermon application, are we doing anything with what we're hearing from the Word? These are, these are things that we personally do. It's part of our responsibility in the sanctification process. The Holy Spirit changes us, but He does so in such a way that we have to give Him something to work with in a sense. We have to put ourselves under the Word so that He can change us with the Word. He doesn't just magically start dumping the word into us if we're not consuming it. What efforts are you putting forth in your own sanctification? 
And then lastly, I think just in, in context of everything we've talked about the last couple of weeks, we need to be fighting for joy in our own life and in the life of others. That's specifically the sanctification that he's talking about. I mean, it flows right out of that last instruction. Be the type of people that are rejoicing always, praying always, giving thanks always. Are we those type of people? Are we fighting for that for ourselves? Are we fighting that for that in the life of our others in our church family also? I challenge you to think about those things as you leave today, to, to wrestle with some of that, to, um, to speak with me or others in leadership here if you have questions about the text today. And we would challenge you to do that. We challenge you to engage on the city again this week with, with thoughts and, and things about um, the text that you personally learned from today. If you're not on the city, it's the easiest thing to do. Um, all you have to do is give us an email address. We send you a, a, an activation thing, and then you're on the city. The city is our online community for our church family where we post prayer requests, post needs, post things that are going on in our life, ways that uh, we're being encouraged. I would I would encourage you, even if you're not sold on being here at Sovereign Hope, I mean, we can easily uh, get you hooked up, and then if you leave, we can easily delete you if we have to. I mean, it's, it's, it's really simple. So don't let it hinge on the fact that I have to be a member to be a part of the city. Um, the city may be exactly what you need to confirm that you want to be here, as it allows you to get to know people outside of the Sunday context as we get to um, just encourage one another in that type of format. I would encourage you to, to do that with the sermon today, to share things that, that the Holy Spirit's personally um, teaching you. I'm going to pray for us this morning, um, and then I'll give you a couple more announcements after that. God, I'm thankful for the text. I'm thankful for this book. Um, as we come to the end, I am grateful for what you have taught me. Um, I'm grateful that you have gotten us through some of the difficult parts of it where we weren't exactly sure how we were going to handle certain things. God, I'm thankful that you produced unity even in those areas, um, that we can all rally around the fact that Jesus is coming back. We may disagree about when he's coming back, but he's coming back. And God, we are thankful that you give us that promise, and we're thankful that you've clued us into the fact that when he does come back, we will be made perfect. God, I pray that you would continue to sanctify this church, that you would continue to build us up into holiness, continue to set us apart, continue to separate us, because we do want to be found holy and blameless. God, I pray that you would strengthen our church. Help us to be the type of people that can strengthen others as well. God, help us to be faithful, to love one another, care for one another in the way that you've called us to. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.